This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm joined by Titus Takura. Titus, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me again, Scott. It's always good to chat. Uh, we appreciate your knowledge and insight as we react to the retirement of the great actor Bruce Willis recently, who was diagnosed with aphasia, which affects uh, the memory and affects communication. And thus, after a string of movies that he acted in in the past two years, and even some that are still yet to come out that have not been finalized yet, he will no longer be acting. And we want to talk generally here about how to think about his 90s career when he was a big action star. But first, I want to ask you, what do we miss out on with Bruce Willis no longer an active part of the film community? What sort of role does he fill that is now empty when it comes to the world of film? Yeah, I think that is the great question to start with. Whenever there's a big career in cinema, you have to ask yourself, why are we all so interested? What do we respond to? What do we mean when we say that's an iconic role or this guy was a star? He was a certain kind of character. And then we always were thrilled to see him again. And with Bruce Willis, it's he was a blue collar hero. And I guess he was the last of that kind. This was a big deal in America in the past, of course. And I think he was born in 55. So you could say in his generation growing up in the 60s and 70s, it still mattered, although it became contested politically. Like now we are hating deplorables. He was deplorable. Hmm. Uh, or it, it also became, of course, subject to all these economic transformations, the loss of manufacturing jobs, the move to a service economy, these new icons that are Silicon Valley celebrities, billionaires, boy billionaires at that, mm-hmm. right? people who never did a hard day's work in their lives. And in a way, that's success. You know, you go to college, everybody wants that for their kids. But in another way, it also means that there's no hardihood, there's no toughness and perhaps no moral and mental toughness either. And Bruce Willis had that in spades. That was what came across on screen. That's why people looked at his face. It was almost like watching Bogart, (laughs) a weather-beaten stone face. Toughness. Titus, if we talk about his string of films through the 90s, we have to, of course, start a little before that in the 80s with a little film called Die Hard, which is beloved. And, of course, we have the annual debate. If it's a Christmas movie or not. We don't want to address that at all during the conversation today. But going back to Die Hard, when you were here on campus a few weeks ago, I heard you talk about this. And, you know, people look at Die Hard. and Yes, it's about this cop who comes and saves the day for the terrorists. And you were saying that no, that's not that's not really what Die Hard is about when you look a little deeper. So what what is Die Hard about? Why is Bruce Willis perfect in that role as John McClane? Yeah, that's the movie that made him a star and deservedly so. It's almost impossible to imagine somebody better in a role or in a way a role more needful for the times. He plays this down on his luck cop whose wife left him to work in a corporation in L.A. She's now much more successful than he is and the family has moved to California. But there is still paradise, at least it seems so. In a way, it seems like he's got nothing and nothing to offer. He's the past of America, not the future. But it turns out that he does have something to offer us. He is the ordinary citizen whose public spirit is necessary to do justice, whose manliness is also necessary to do justice. And doing justice requires criticizing all these elite institutions in America. Wall Street millionaires come in for criticism and cokeheads, especially among them. But also everything from the media and academic therapeutic ethics, all the way to the police and city politics and even the FBI. 
In all these ways, the movie was prophetic about a kind of conservative attack on elite institutions, a democratic, even a populist attack on oligarchies based in New York or D.C. or L.A., etc. I think we should probably begin to walk through at least the the next two diehard films before looking at other movies from that decade of the 90s. If we move to Die Hard 2 with Fred Thompson, the former U.S. senator, of course, in the film, Dennis Franz, this theme about sort of a common blue-collar man fighting against elite institutions. Here we have critiques of American foreign policy. We have critiques of the authority of the airport police. And you do it my way or you get out of this tower. And one man in Bruce Willis sort of has to take it upon himself to fix all these errors of the system. How does the plot of Die Hard 2 either reflect or contrast with the success and the plot of the, the original Die Hard? Yeah, it's a strange thing and it doesn't work very well because it has so much interest in foreign policy, which in a way is the weakest point mm-hmm. in ordinary citizenship. The ordinary citizen does not know much about the inner workings of various South American or Central American regimes as part of the plot <laughs> or most of the world, right? Yeah. But the ordinary citizen does have a certain kind of patriotism that makes demands on foreign policy. American foreign policy should be such that it corresponds to the moral demands of the citizens and in that way becomes intelligible or at least largely predictable. But the other theme you broached is, I think, quintessential to working class action heroes and what they brought and I suppose bring to America if we still admire these movies. A patriotic, conservative, Mm anti-authoritarianism. This sometimes looks libertarian, don't tell me what to do. But of course, don't tread on me and the Gadsden flag has a deeper political meaning than I want my life my own way. It means that authorities are often wrong or often enough, and yet there's not a lot of space for citizens to act. There's not a lot of procedures by which citizens can participate in self-government in modern America, which is so bureaucratic. Think of an airport, right? That's the point about Die Hard 2, which, again, is just good sociological observation. Airports have become an education in despotism. Think about the post-9-11 TSA. Everybody's bullied. Everybody's harassed, everybody's treated badly by a system that is absolutely impersonal. You do it my way or you get out of here or you end up on a no-fly list these days, I guess. There you see again what people saw in that story. Here is a guy who will not put up with these impersonal rules, who will not put up with the bullying, who will somehow stand up for American character and say, no, a man should take responsibility for these things and he should act. He should be in some way public-spirited and therefore his action should have a public character. And I think that established the pattern for a lot of the 90s movies. Mm-hmm. Bruce was the best at it, but not the only one, where this kind of anti-authoritarian streak suggests that conservatism requires more of citizens by way of public action, mm-hmm. or otherwise life just becomes too impersonal to be really American. I want to ask more about him as an action hero in a moment, but let's close out this sort of Die Hard beginning trilogy with Die Hard with a Vengeance, this film from the mid-90s, bringing in Samuel L. Jackson as a co-star for Bruce Willis to work alongside. Many Die Hard fans really like this film, like the dialogue, the plot, the riddles, the interaction between Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. There's, of course, the classic Die Hard plot evident here, but there's also some commentary on society. And when you have Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson next to each other, this comment on race relations in America. How does Die Hard with a Vengeance get at that? Yeah, I guess that's the part of the Die Hard formula that doesn't get enough attention. Of course, the relationship between John McClane and the cop played by original Bill Johnson in the original Die Hard was also a big deal. Yes. Both of them being in some ways in need of redemption. 
in Die Hard with a Vengeance, there's again a white guy and a black guy who have to learn to tolerate each other, even to like each other in a certain way, <laughs> because they both have children to protect. The children in the schools of New York who are under terrorist threat, they are the children, the nephews of the Samuel Jackson character, Zeus. That gives them something to fight together for. And you can see there, it's a fairly obvious metaphor for American racial reconciliation for the sake of a better future. You have to bury some of the grudges. You have to forget some of the suffering or allow it to be forgotten by the next generation, rather, so that they are not scarred by it. And it's not an accident that the movie has as its moral core this team of these two guys. America is, in a way, under threat in Die Hard with a Vengeance. There's international financial terrorism Mm -hmm. and, indeed, the Federal Reserve under attack. That is the economic core of the regime. If the dollar fails, business fails, the commercial republic fails, and citizenship must fail with it, too. So this thing that starts with a terrorist attack, then the race problem of America then leads us from Harlem to Manhattan, from the eccentric part to the center of global capitalism, not just of New York. So there's a lot in that story that's metaphoric and a lot of it that speaks to American politics in the 90s and to an understanding of the regime that demands these two citizens, a white guy and a black guy, band together if they're going to defend this thing that is really the only thing keeping them, so to speak, on friendly terms. They have children to think of. They have a future for the sake of which to sacrifice. I hadn't considered this before, Titus, but but listening to you to talk about the plots, you know, in the original Die Hard, we have essentially business under attack at the Nakatomi Plaza. In Die Hard 2, we have infrastructure, transportation, this American idea of being able to go wherever you want, whenever you want. And in the third Die Hard, we have the American financial institution quite literally under attack. Are those intentional targets by the filmmakers? Yeah, I think that's so, especially the first and the third Die Hard were made by John McTiernan, the great action director America produced, and I've also made The Hunt for Red October and Predator and other wonderful movies. And of course, it was a very big success in that short span between the mid-80s and the late 90s when mm-hmm. the action movie thrived. You know, it's not plausible that he got so many things right about problems of madness in America by accident. These movies try to remind Americans, think how prescient they all seem now. In the 90s, it looked like popcorn fun, but it turned out we were all terrified of terrorism Mm -hmm. and we were all much more vulnerable than we thought we were. We just didn't take it seriously because it's the movies and we don't think about the movies, so to speak. But these were all very good warnings about why we need manliness as a part of citizenship, as a part of justice, and why we need to take seriously how vulnerable we really are. Violence, too, can become very impersonal, very anonymous in a society where we're largely strangers. We don't know people around. There's just too many of us for person-to-person knowledge. The institutions are too impersonal for us to be connected hierarchically or in an ordered way. We're just stuck with other people we don't really know. Mm -hmm. And that means that the potential for catastrophe is immense, that society is in a way under attack simply by dissolution, by a kind of dissolving of the bonds of friendship, of familiarity, of justice, ultimately. So when one of these attacks happens on a critical part of the American regime, all of a sudden you realize how much citizenship virtue is necessary mm-hmm. and how little of it in a way there is left. And so John McClane, especially in Die Hard 3, becomes in a way a symbol for the ordinary American. It's not that every day this guy gets out of the house and another terrorist attack happens. <laughs> it's that he's what we all hope to be, the guy who will rise to the occasion. Terrible things happen, some terrible shooting, some bad accident even, doesn't have to be some act of injustice. 
and somebody will have to save people's lives. Mm. And these people do exist in America. We hear about them now and then on the news. Yeah. This guy stopped the robbery. That guy stopped the murder. They are John McClane's. But somehow we don't pay attention to them. These movies were trying to teach us to treasure not celebrities, but citizen heroes. The Bruce Willis's of this world, not the male models and the female supermodels. Ordinary citizens who showed by that virtue that they really care about other people and that they respect themselves, that they can't be cowards. That's, I think, what the movies were about. But just like we didn't appreciate how real the wording they gave us about political threats like terrorism was, mm-hmm. we didn't appreciate their character, how needful that is to us. This was not entertainment. It was attempted moral persuasion, yeah. a public service to America. Really. Uh, Willis, as a person, as an actor, he's not Sylvester Stallone. He's not Rocky. He's not muscular. He's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not a bodybuilder. He's not Jean-Claude Van Damme. He's not Steven Seagal, martial arts. All these guys were big stars around the same time, and yet you have Bruce Willis, this blue-collar, morally, mentally tough guy, anchoring all these action films, and we believe it. We invest in it. We buy it that Bruce Willis, as a character, can do these things. Why did we, the film public, love him so much as an action hero, despite not having those skills, those muscles, that outward strength of some of these other actors? Part of it was his humor, the twinkle in his eyes, there's the lines he comes up with. There was something very charming about Bruce Willis that took some of the edge off the violence, off the thriller aspect. We were in for a ride, but we were kind of reassured that we're along for the ride with this charming, charming guy. But the other part, I think, is precisely his ordinariness. As a guy who's balding in his 30s or 40s. <laughs> Doesn't seem so special. There's a lot of people like that. It was precisely the extent to which he was recognizably American. I grew up in faraway East Europe, and one of my first images of America was Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Mm -hmm. I I thought I got it. Later, when I grew up and started watching Westerns, I thought, yes, I I had got it. I was right. This is something essential to American character. Ordinary men standing up for their freedom will stand up for everybody else's freedom, too. Their sense of their integrity somehow requires that you take care of other people as well and, in a way, earn their respect, get their consent to authorize your use of violence in these cases. And it's precisely the fact that he is not out of this world. He's not a superhero that made him so attractive. It somehow gave us hope that maybe it'll happen. You know, maybe it'll be you, maybe it'll be me when the chips are down. Did he, in some way, do you think, take the baton from someone like Clint Eastwood, a stone-faced star with these cutting lines of dark humor in the midst of these dirty, hairy films, rebelling against authoritarian figures who think they all have it figured out but really have no clue whatsoever what they're doing. Is there a link between those Eastwood characters and some of the Bruce Willis characters? Yeah, I think so. Dirty Harry is the prototype of this conservative, even reactionary cop who understands that some things really are horrible and the people who pretend they're progressive or special or moralistic actually are cowards, that they would never face danger if it came. But on the other hand, precisely because they don't think ahead of danger, they will rush headlong into it. These movies show that the tough guy cop who seems like a bad guy is in fact the savior we need supposed to suggest that our good intentions and our moralism make it very easy with certain kinds of progressive authorities or liberal authorities to go from coward to full-blown psychopath with nothing in between. Hmm. Because uh, when you're blind of danger, you could rush headlong into it, hysterically, so to speak, enthusiastically. Yeah. Whereas these guys are clear-eyed and they're clear-headed. 
because you see suffering in their faces, life has not been good to them. They know to look out and to look around. They know to worry and just to face up to the fact that sometimes things go really, really bad and you need to deal with that. That's a kind of moral seriousness that we don't really see in our public discourse. Our elites have none of that. And in certain ways, it's just got out of our society precisely at the point when we said, well, you know, college is going to be the path to success in America. We'll just trust these institutions. Well, college, for all its virtues, has certain massive weaknesses. It's absolutely removed from American life. It involves very little responsibility and nothing that has the character of dealing with justice, with the problem of punishment with protecting the common good, with fearing danger and preparing for it. So in a way, we created the very soft people who then became very moralistic about their softness. Mm-hmm. With Dirty Harry, you already see that because he speaks up for the rights of victims in an age when crime skyrocketed in the 60s, he's blamed himself. Why are you saying nasty things? Why are you bringing up bad stuff? Shut up about that. Then you see that with John McLean as well. He exposes systematically the elitist arrogance in institutions that we now rightly call oligarchic, and he gets blamed for it. He never gets rewards, right? Mm-hmm. There's no honor for John McLean. America does not care about it. And in that way, the movies try to teach you should respect these reactionary tough guys more if they do contribute something to the public good, not if they talk tough or come up with clever lines, but if they save the day. That is a much better test of virtue than saying the right words. Hmm. Deeds should count more. Titus, not every action film in the 90s was as successful for Bruce Willis, at least commercially. You have something like The Last Boy Scout with Damon Wayans, something like Striking Distance with the great Chicago actor Dennis Farina. But in both these films, he plays disgraced characters. Both are darker, more sordid than some of the the straight action films that he played in during that decade. Neither was as successful at the box office. The Last Boy Scout sort of has cult following, but certainly a a following now uh, post-theatrical release. Was it tougher for Bruce Willis to sell those films simply due to his natural likability? He was playing characters that you were not supposed to trust, not supposed to like, and yet he's still Bruce Willis. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's a difficulty with selling Bruce Willis unless the story is really explosive because he is, as we said, ordinary. And sometimes people just think, well, he's not really attracting my attention. There are all these other much prettier things, for example, competing for my attention. Why should I pay attention to this? Mm-hmm. Just like John McTiernan, the diehard director, is the great action movie director. The guy who wrote The Last Boy Scout, Shane Black, was the great writer. Yeah. He wrote Lethal Weapon and, and a bunch of other wonderful movies up to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys in the 2000s and the teens. His trademark is all these movies take place at Christmas. And on the other hand, somebody at some point in the movie says there's no heroes anymore. That was the problem with selling The Last Boy Scout. It's showing an ugly side of America, of sports betting, of rich people trying to exploit popular passion, of the counterfeiting of moral virtue through showmanship. The NFL, in short. Again, if you think about it in a way, it was prophetic. Uh, (laughs) In our time, sports celebrities are supposed to be examples of manliness, but they all have turned out to be, say, incredibly cowardly, kowtowing to Chinese tyranny or such things. It turns out these people are not men. They don't stand up for anything. They don't even dare shut up now and then and save what is left of their honor, so to call it. But in the movie, you see how celebrity, celebrity worship and entertainment is wiping out America's heroes. It's making moral virtue seem unattractive because it's not glamorous. It's not full of spectacle and there are not millions of dollars involved. 
And uh, it turned out that the movie was exactly right. <laughs> America wasn't that interested in these kinds of exemplars of moral virtue. Yeah. These men in search for nobility who are agonized by their failures because the country just doesn't love them enough. And so, yeah, the country didn't love the movie much. It made a decent showing at the box office, but it didn't do great. And so with many of his roles in the 90s, they weren't properly appreciated because gradually the taste for blue-collar heroics disappeared. And the notion with it that ordinary Americans count that their stories might be worthwhile, that also kind of disappeared. But Bruce Willis did excel at these roles as a cop or as a private detective, at mm -hmm. any rate, a man on the case, a kind of inheritor of the noir detective from the 30s and 40s. He did that in this sci-fi movie called The Fifth Element, directed by the great French director Luc Besson, mm -hmm. uh, where he plays a space-age noir detective, yes. but still a down-on-his-luck blue-color guy, yeah. even in the far distant galactic future. That, that was what he did best. And for a while, America liked it. But there were not enough writers and directors to get this done. There was not enough respect for these things to convince audiences this is not just a hit. This could be something more. Mm -hmm. the, the genre could be something more. Instead, everything was reduced to cliches. And eventually, Bruce Willis became this figure of invincibility, almost a caricature, because there were not artists, writers and directors to make wonderful stories for him. And on the other hand, the audience began to indulge an ever more sarcastic attitude, mm -hmm. an ever more ridiculous attitude that kills heroes. Yes. Uh, Titus, uh, final question. So that is the evolution of through the 90s into the early aughts of, of this sort of film. Do you have any sense that there is again an appetite now, today, for this sort of blue-collar hero with high morals who perhaps can fight against authority? Is there any actor on the scene today you think can pull off that sort of character? Uh, no, I'm sorry to say, I don't really know somebody who does this. I don't really know either directors or actors who are involved in this stuff. Somehow it has become, I think, uh, unthinkable now. I you know the movies, like the action movies of the 80s or 90s are still quite popular and people have the chance to see them now online to stream them. But they're, of course, against the taste. Nobody's speaking up in favor of this. So you end up somehow with millions of people who love this and nobody to speak up for them. And accordingly, there's no way to let anyone in Hollywood know this is something that they might get in the business of again. But think about Christopher Nolan. You know, his debut was a kind of neo-noir, memento, about mm -hmm. the private detective and cops in a really ghastly vision of California. And on the other hand, think of Interstellar, where he has an astronaut who's also a farmer. That is, again, a very blue-collar vision of manliness. It's what we call Southern Stoicism. This showed up to some extent in movies about the war in Iraq, like American mm -hmm. Sniper, about the real-life sniper Chris Kyle, also from a blue-collar background. And there's still something of that noir sensibility in some artists. Quentin Tarantino had a big success with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right. where Brad Pitt, of all people, plays quite convincingly a very blue-collar guy, mm -hmm. who's also heroic and something of a detective. He's also done the novelization of that movie now. So these influences are still there, the influences of the noir, of the blue-collar hero, of the noble man of deeds, who doesn't really get rewarded. But they're much more difficult to recognize, I guess, for the audience, because they're not a genre. They are not of great appeal. Mm -hmm. And we've lost something with that. We've lost any respect for moral seriousness, for mental and moral toughness, that is. We should probably think about getting back to that. Titus, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me, Scott. All the best.